Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Good morning, Journey Church. And welcome to Family Sunday. Yes, you have babies on your laps. You're going to hear some distractions. This we do on purpose. We believe it's good and right for kids to see adults worshiping and vice versa. So uh, we do this from time and time again, uh, first Sunday of the month and Family Sunday. And as a Family Sunday, I thought I'd introduce you to the newest member of my family. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Luke James Bankhead. I thought James John Roden Jr. sounded better, but Luke James Bankhead will do for now. So yeah, he's two days old. I told him to come to church and he ignored me. So he's at home today, but uh, that's, the, the Roden household is expanding, and I had to put that in there. And I'm not going to force fit it into the service beyond, beyond that. Hey, let me tell you a story. A little over one year ago, uh, we were in an elders board meeting, and I asked the elders, hey, tell us how we're doing as a church. Uh, tell us if we're healthy or not. And what we discovered together in that meeting is that despite 26 years of being in the ministry for me, 14 years as a senior pastor and getting a doctorate in church health from Talbot Theological Seminary, we did not have a rubric or a master list of biblical church health indices from which to evaluate church health. And so I went to work for the the next 14 months, worked on and reworked on and submitted and peer review and back and forth until we had a master list for the time being, because some of these things overlap, but we now have a list of 21 church health factors. You know, 21, yeah, we have a a list of 21 that uh, come from the scriptures, come from our understanding of biblical church health. And we have now, I have now turned that into an assessment tool for us and other churches. And so this week, Monday or Tuesday, you are, if you are on our email list, you're going to be sent a link to a Google form document and that link is going to take you into a simple assessment Um, it can be anonymous it's not collecting your email but we do ask some demographic questions before you proceed to your own your own opinion of how we're doing as a church in each of these areas so encourage you invite you to actually participate that it coming this week that's going to help us for the rest of the year the rest of our life together it's also going to be sermon number eight the findings are going to be sermon number eight in our sermon series the letters to the churches so we uh we plan this strategically these seven letters that come from jesus to the seven churches in asia minor in the first century found in revelation two through three this is all a piece of our strategy for this year and our vision And so we've been through uh, the church at Ephesus, and we saw Ephesus three weeks ago. They're hardworking, discerning, and they're they're self-policing as far as church discipline, but they lost the love they had at first. And what we see here is that they're no longer being energized to be a gospel witness into their city. That's the the thing, the, the takeaway there. They're failing as a gospel witness, and for that reason... Jesus is threatening to remove them completely as a golden candle stand. Smyrna was next. They're the beat down, persecuted, impoverished church. 
and yet they are faithful, and Jesus calls them spiritually rich. This goes against some of our thinking of how do we know if a church is healthy? Well, it's large, it's vibrant. People want to go there, not in Smyrna, and yet Jesus called them faithful and rich. Then last week we looked at Pergamum. They're tenacious and a faithful witness in the face of a full frontal attack by a roaring lion named Satan. And they're faithful in the face of persecution. But they were so faithful and so focused on the frontal assault that they didn't notice that he was slipping in through the back door as a prowler, coming in through a subtle, convincing heresy from a group called the Nicolaitans. This morning, we're jumping into Thyatira, the longest, most difficult letter to the smallest and most insignificant of all the cities and all the churches, and on a family Sunday when we want to have communion. So here we go. We're going to jump into the text, and we're going to fly through it. I'm going to make some comments as we go, and then try to get us to the most important part for where we're at as individuals and as Journey Church. So here it is, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. It's going to be up here. It's also in your bulletin, or you can open in your Bible so you can actually scribble notes. Here's what the Lord says to this fourth church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Stop there for just a moment. These are Old Testament metaphors that also showed up in Revelation chapter 1 in the introduction in the vision of what John saw. He saw Jesus uh, in this form. And there's absolutely some metaphor to why Jesus has burning eyes and burnished bronze feet. And the idea is this. Man looks on the outward appearance. We think we know what a healthy church is. We have things that we like and prefer, things that meet our needs. But guess who sees through it all to the heart of the matter? And guess whose opinion actually matters most? The Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, All things are open and laid bare according to the eyes with whom we have to do. So Jesus cuts right through it and sees what it is. And then the burnished bronze actually comes from a vision of Daniel. And the idea of of bronze means strength. And the fact that it's burnished, this is a picture of angelic majesty or supernatural power. That Jesus comes not just as the lowly Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. He comes as the powerful, exalted Christ to whom all authority has been handed over to him. So, in those burning eyes and those burnished bronze feet are going to come in to view in this letter. Let's look at verse 19. I know your works and your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. There's at least five qualities that if we're building a list of church health qualities, we go, bam, there's five. Hard work or volunteerism, sacrificial effort and labor, that you show up, you don't just 
uh, just don't consume and, and evaluate the sermon and the music. You actually contribute. And these are contributing Christians. Uh, the word love is agape. It's not an icky love, a bad love, a sloppy love. It is good love. Godly love. Sacrificial love. Faith is pistis. This is the, the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And that they are holding fast in faith. Service is uh, the whole idea back to works and effort. Putting in, it's the word diaconia, or service or ministry. And then we see the word endurance. Hupomeno, it's a compound word that means to remain under a, a heavy weight. So even if ministry gets heavy and, and witnessing for the Lord seems uncomfortable, this church has stayed the course and then he doubles down on the word for work and says that your last works are even greater than your first works. So contrast this to the first church we looked at, Ephesus, where they were strong in doctrine and in suffering and discernment, but they had no love. And because of that, their works of grace and their efforts at evangelism were actually diminishing over time. And Jesus says, repent and do the works you did at first that were motivated out of love for the lost. Go back and do that. Well, this church has that. And the love is still firing up in them. And they're actually trying harder to reach more people with the gospel there in this small town. But notice that's not the end of the story. There's a problem in this church. Verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Sounds very similar to Pergamum of last week, but it's different in magnitude. It's actually progressed. If the church in Pergamum was flirting with the world, there was a portion of this church that was in bed with the world. So we look on. And it says, behold, verse 22, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit, oh, oh, 21, sorry, this is important, it's God's word, I gave her time to repent. Oh, by the way, she is not in the culture. She is not in the community. She is in the church. And the Lord is giving her time to repent. And she has said, no, thank you. So now verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches and here's where those burning eyes come in. I search the mind and the heart. The words in the Greek language have to do with uh, the heart and the kidneys one being the center of intellect and logical thinking skills, and the other the center of emotion. That's how the, the Hebrews and the Greeks saw these two words for mind and heart. I will give each of you according to your work. I'm looking through, I see what you're saying, I see what you're doing, but I see to the heart of the matter individuals and collections of groups. Now, pause really quick. One more thing I want to just mention Every sickness and disease and ailment is not a judgment, specifically, okay? However, there is fantastic theology throughout the scripture 
God judge, does judge his people many times through using physical pain, illness, and disease. Uh, that's not popular, but it's all over the New Testament and Old Testament. Sometimes it's satanic, and actually because someone's being faithful, so we don't just go, oh, they had a son with disability. Uh, they're being judged. Not on my watch. This goes back to John and who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither. He's born blind. Neither. But that the power of God could be displayed. So don't do that. Oh, something bad's happening. God must be judging them. Nope, 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 nope. But understand also there is a sin unto death that applies to rebellious, unrepentant Christians. That's a real thing. Just want to mention that. And it's because God loves us too much to bless us in our sinfulness. And he loves his name and his gospel too much to bless rebellious children and allow them to pervert. And it's at the heart of the problem with this church and what he threatens to do to them. And just for the record, there is a theology of discipline by sickness and discipline by death for God's children found in several New Testament passages. Let's go ahead and finish the reading. But to the rest of you, verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and I do not lay on you any other burden, verse 25, only hold fast what you have. What do they have? They have Christ, they have the gospel, and all the virtues named in the first or, or the second verse. He's saying, don't stop doing all those things. Those things are good things. Hold fast to them, keep doing those things, and don't follow Jezebel. And the people that say whatever she's saying is okay. Verse 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Why is that so meaningful? Is because it's the smallest, most insignificant of the seven cities and the seven churches. Small and insignificant. In fact, I'll tell you in a moment, they've, they've been, Thyatira is in a center of a broad valley with no natural protection. So over the centuries, whoever's coming through as a conquering military leader takes Thyatira like that. So they're always switching sides. First city to be taken down all the time. They're like, they got no political military clout. And Jesus says, hey, faithful ones in this church, you're going to rule the nations. That's got just a powerful encouragement for a minority group of people. And it says in verse 27, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 2, the, the whole thing. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So once again, there's a map up here. Shows you where Thyatira is located, 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. In the center of a broad valley, you can't really see that on the map. But here's what's fascinating. There's only one temple in Thyatira. It's not really a, a military political power, but it's not also not a religious power. There's only one temple to the Greek sun god Apollos. But that's like not a major theme at all. And so you go, that's interesting. Well, what's going on in Thyatira? 
Well, what they lacked religiously and politically, they made up for economically. This was a blue-collar town. The trades were very popular here. In fact, ancient coins from Thyatira, you can see bronze workers. Could be a reference uh, why Jesus references himself with a feet of burnished bronze. Um, there's potters. That's why he's citing Psalm 2 and shattering of pots. Um, there's bakers. But then they're also famous for weaving linen and fabric dyeing. So if you are familiar with the scripture, and especially the book of Acts, in Acts 16, 14, the Apostle Paul comes across a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple fabric, who hails from Thyatira. It's the only other place where you see Thyatira. And it's Lydia came from this trade guild manufacturing blue-collar town. And so here's the question, is if they're not a hyper-crazy, religious, idolatrous culture, and there's not a lot of temples, who's Jezebel and what's this whole thing about? And here's what we discover time and time again as we research and go back 2,000 years to this church in Thyatira. What they lacked in political and religious uh, energy, they made up for in their trade guilds, and every single trade guild had its patron deity. And as a member of the trade guild, you would go to a trade guild party, and you might not be at a temple because there's not a lot of temples, but you're doing interesting rituals. And to belong to that trade guild was very important for you economic. Don't you love that? That's the sound of life. So we love, woo! Let her rip. Yeah. All right. That's good. I just want to, wanted to mention we hear that and we like it. All right. So, so you'd go to the trade guild party. And that was really important for you to be included so that you'd get some of the business. But in order to really be included, you had to, when in Rome, be like the Romans, right? You had to do what they do. And if so, now they're, they're calling up their pagan deity and burning incense and then enacting rituals that involve sexual immorality. Well, you got to do that if you want to really show them that you're for them and with them. And, but that's completely contrary to the gospel. So who is Jezebel? That's obviously not her name. No one would name their child Jezebel in the first century. Jew or Christian. That's not happening. Because that's a reference to 1 Kings. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon, and she married King Ahab, which was one of the most wicked and reprehensible and cowardly and, and spineless kings of Israel. And Jezebel ran the marriage and the household and the nation. And she was wicked. She personally funded at least 600 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Another false god. She's the one who threatened to murder Elijah after the showdown on Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of, of Baal. Those were her dudes. And they were, they were put to death there. Then she said, I'm going to murder Elijah now. Okay, this is a wicked woman that's inside the people of Israel teaching and influencing all of the, the northern tribes into idolatry, witchcraft, sexual immorality. And, I mean, th this is like 
blatant, obviously. This is not like, hey, I'm not sure if we should have a Christmas tree. I wonder, does that come from like paganism or something? This is not that. This is like, no, we're all, I can't even explain it. It's really bad. It's really bad what they're doing in ancient Israel and now in the church in Thyatira so that they could fit in at their office party so that they, they don't face economic sanctions against them in the guilds. And apparently this woman's saying, guys, come on, get with the times. It's not that big a deal. You got to make money. Could be an early form of Gnosticism that your, your spirit is clean. Who cares what you do with your body? Uh, she might be saying, just go along with it and play act. Don't mean it, but just kind of do the do. Any number of things that she might be saying. But she is teaching and seducing. My bondservants, it's the doulos. These are, these are genuine, born-again Christians that are being seduced by this woman. And what we have a picture going on here is a kind of of sinfulness that is eating away at the witness of the church. I've already pointed out that what they had was good and that it was a very uh, light gospel witness, a powerful witness. Uh, the service that they were providing and, and the loving on their neighbors and serving. This is how the church was founded and how it spread in the first century. Is born-again Christians that did not agree with the lifestyles of the lost and yet coming in humbly from a minority position and serving and loving their, their friends, neighbors, relatives, co-workers. And the church was established that way. People were going, I'm, t I'm exhausted of the idolatry, it's it's. I, I feel icky. I'm and they would they were refugees from the world unto Christ, and it happened because their neighbors would serve and give. And this church is very powerful in this kind of evangelism, but there's a problem, and the problem isn't even sin in the city. It's not even that it's their sin in the church. It's not even that there's false teaching, it's that there's tolerance. Tolerance of false teaching. Let me explain this for just a moment. What's wrong with this church? To what degree is it dysfunctional? In order to, to look at that, I want to do a, a brief survey of, of sin. And it's not comprehensive, but it's, it's places where we find sin and kinds of sin. Again, it's not going to be deeply nuanced. It's, it's very, very simple, straightforward. And, and what kind of sin? What, what do we do with each kind of sin where we find it? So here, here we go. It's five. Five different uh, manifestations or contexts of sin. Here's the first one. Sin in the world. And certainly Thyatira had sin in the world. Sin in its culture. Trade guild, office parties, where they're getting lit, where they're celebrating before a false god, where they're taking their clothes off, who knows what other kinds of crazy things going on. And yes, it's bad. 
And yes, we have an opinion about it as Christians. And yes, the scripture speaks to it. But guess what? It's normal. And sinners are to be tolerated. Where do I get this? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul has to correct a church in Corinth. And, and they're actually getting really excited about celebrating a kinky freak in their congregation. And Paul goes, are you kidding? You, you should mourn, not celebrate. If that guy doesn't repent, put him out of the church. And then he has to explain. But by doing that, I don't want you to become this kind of church. And he says, when I told you that there shouldn't be sin in the church or sexual immorality in the church, I, I wasn't telling you to condemn the world. I'm telling you to actually police the congregation. We don't judge the world. I'm telling you to judge yourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It's bad, but it's normal, and that's not our problem. Sin or sin, and that's what the gospel's for. Here's the second kind of sin. Sin that happens in the church as well. Because the church is made up of sinners and strugglers who are working through their issues. Christ is being formed in us over time. Believers still sin. But growing believers live in repentance. So someone that feels bad about their sin, you don't come with a heavy fist and go, you're out of here. You made us look terrible. You're, you're a terrible person. We have very high gag factors in the body of Christ. Because people are coming to us with all kinds of crazy addictions and pasts and, and stuff that's been done to them. So a high gag factor for repentant sinners. It's still bad. It's still wrong. We have an opinion about it, but we tolerate each other's struggles. Here's where the line comes in. Type 3 sin. Unrepentance in the church. And they might say that they're repentance, but they're playing games, or they're hiding it, ignoring it, minimizing it. Or boldface, no, this isn't sin, and I'm not going to stop, or who knows. But it's unrepentance in the church, a committed course of action without remorse by individuals or groups of individuals. And that's where that line is. That's where, where the process of restoration begins, and might even move toward something that we call church discipline. But that's not even the worst. You know where it gets even worse? Is when the philosophy of ministry says we don't talk about those things in the church. Oh, we might agree, but you're going to have to really dig and needle and, and, and find. Like, do you guys even believe in sin? Because it's never mentioned. It's not in the pulpit. It's not in the, in the discipleship. It's just not mentioned. Why? Because it might hurt numbers. We might, it might be, make people feel bad. And so we just de-emphasize it, and that's slippery because you don't know what's going on there. Do you, are you affirming? Do you not believe the scripture? But it's actually a philosophy or a teacher that says, you know, that's not a big deal. We just don't, don't need to do that here. And what happens is that we're, they begin to move the line or undermining the very moral foundations established by God himself so that someone that wants to actually become a Christian and get saved, born again, forgiven of sin, doesn't even know where the sin might be in their life. The Ten Commandments are gone. That's when it's getting really bad, but you want to know something? There's something even worse. It's a level five sin. It's actually giving one of those teachers 
a microphone and airtime in the church. And it happens. It happens. There are people that believe we need to be open-minded. We need to consider maybe we got something wrong, and certainly we do get things wrong, and certainly we need to be open-minded, but they say on all issues. We need to have a conversation. And we need to talk about these things, and yet the things they want to talk about are clear in the Old Testament, New Testament, and 2,000 years of church history. In men and women, we live in a time when churches and whole denominations are giving equal airtime in a microphone to an individual or individuals who are saying, yeah, look that way. There's no sin here. That's the wrong topic. That's not what it meant when, when the scripture said. No, the church had that one wrong. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, said this, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. There are some things that are not up for debate in church doctrine. One of the things that I love about the EFCA is that we unite around a solid, biblically irrefutable core of ten doctrines. And we have soft edges. So there's cer certain things that we go, you can believe that or disbelieve that, but that's not, that's not a battle line here. And you can come in or out of the EFCA, but, but we are not budging on, I call it like thermonuclear-powered central core of 10 articles of faith. And we're not budging on these. So if you can't align with these, we're not your church or your kind of church is. Okay, there's some things that we are not discussing um, a biblical standard of human sexuality is a foregone conclusion. Now, we love people, and we can hear people's stories. We don't always have to offer our opinion in conversation. You are not obliged to blurt out your stance on everything, but we're not having a conversation as to whether or not it's true or not true. So there's an appropriateness and an approach, certainly, but there is an absolute standard. So here's the idea. We are to tolerate the lost. In the church, we're actually called to tolerate one another's quirkiness and scruples and struggles. We are called to tolerate. But we should not, cannot, and will not tolerate idolatry and immorality in the church and we certainly will not give a microphone to those who practice and preach such things. Amen? Here's our bottom line for our message as we look to a lesson on church health. And it goes like this. External gospel witness, which is important. You can't be a healthy church without it. 
But external gospel witness without internal gospel goodness, that means discipleship. That means we're not perfect, but we agree to the standard and that we're submitting and to the standard, to the Lord, to one another. We're, we're working through our stuff. Gospel goodness. External gospel witness without internal gospel goodness is illogical and it is unsustainable. I want you to notice I didn't say impossible. It can go on for a time and a season and look successful. I know this philosophy of ministry. I know people in this world. I could name names today nationally and locally. Hey, let's just get them the gospel. And when they say that, I go, amen, let's just get them the gospel. You know what? The gospel contains the bad news as well as the good news. But what they mean, let's just focus on the good news and the hope and the joy and the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the hope. Let's keep it on the up and up. And people don't know what they're repenting of. They don't know why they need a Savior. They don't know what's in their life. That's not love. That's recklessness and irresponsibility. But the philosophy is like, let's just major on the good part. You catch more, more flies with honey than you do with whatever. And that's, I've heard that. And so let's keep it on the up and up and the positive. Certainly we're not here to just Bible bang and beat people to death. That's not what we do anyway. But to be clear, hey, God has something better. This stuff is called sin. God loves you too much to let you go in, on in that without warning you and calling you to repentance. He wants to save you from that stuff. That's the foundation of the gospel. But there are churches and philosophies that just say, let's just love them where they're at. And never mention that we actually have a problem that separates us from a holy God. And it's simply reckless and irresponsible. Because no amount of external gospel effort into the, the community will ever excuse or justify internal spiritual moral doctrinal decay and corrosion Ephesus had the internal clarity to kick out and move on and resist false teachers and teachings but they didn't have love this church has love but their standard is gone and because of that they are becoming a remnant most of the church has gone heretical in Thyatira. And there's only a few that are left that Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. Now, in, in just closing, I want to unpack a couple of these things of, of the bottom line when I say external gospel witness without internal gospel goodness is illogical and un unsustainable. Let me just say that it's illogical for this reason. It's illogical because believers are saved from sin. I feel like I've already talked about this is the foundation of the gospel. And what must I be saved and forgiven from? And now to have it in the church and say, yeah, yeah, that wasn't, we didn't really mean that. Cool Christians actually do what everyone else is doing. And that's not a bad thing. This is Jezebel's thinking. I mean, we need to be so relevant that we're no longer relevant. There's no difference between what it means to live as a gospel Christian. You're just the same thing. So why even bother showing up on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or anything else? It's illogical. We're actually saved from something. Something is called sin. The Apostle Paul would say this in Romans 6, 2. How can we who died to sin, and that's the idea of conversion and, and 
uh, forgiveness of sins and coming to faith in Christ, we have died to sin. We're being saved from it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We've actually died from the conse- or to the consequences, the, the penalty of sin. We've been saved from that. We are being saved from the power of sin in our life. How can we just say that there's no such thing and to melt right back into the culture and do everything that they are doing? That's what's going on in Thyatira. That's what's going on in our world. It's illogical because we've been saved from that stuff. We've died to it. A couple of scriptures that Paul says to the church in Corinth, flee from idolatry. Later on or earlier on, he said, flee from sexual immorality. In his letter to the, to the church in Colossae, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That is idolatry. Put it off, die to it, flee from it, and here's the deal. You can struggle, you can fail, you can have scruples, you can have bad habits that you're working through, you can have besetting sins, but you can't explain it away, ignore it, say it's not a big deal, minimize it in yourself, in the church, or in others, or say that it's a good thing. Okay? We've been saved from that. We live like we're saved from it. Here's the second thing. It's not only illogical, it's unsustainable. Unsustainable because corrosion of the gospel message within the church, discipleship and training in righteousness, unsustainable because gospel corruption or corrosion erodes a church's witness from the inside out. How many of you have ever had a bat- uh, uh, flashlight and you don't turn it on for two years and you go to turn it on in an emergency and it's, it doesn't work? You go, batteries must be dead. Let's change those batteries. You unscrew it, and the batteries won't come out. You have that? And so you look in there, and it's covered in white funk. It's corrosion, right? And by the way, let me just tell you, that's unfixable. It, without, like, it'll cost you way more time and energy to try to fix that. Throw it in the dump. It's done. It's gone. The corrosion destroyed its ability to cast light. It's the same exact thing with a church that will not police itself and train itself in sound doctrine that includes both information and lifestyle. It will eat itself alive from the inside out. That's exactly what's happening in Thyatira. Unsustainable because gospel corrosion erodes a church's witness from the inside out. The Apostle Paul in his introduction to the, to the church in Rome, talking about the Jews, he said that, talking to Jews, he says, said, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles before you. He's citing about three different Old Testament prophecies, rolling them together and rewording them here. And his, his argument for the Jews that claim they love God and yet are living like hell is the same for the church that churches can become, instead of a light to the nations, we become a laughingstock of the nations. Because we who talk about the gospel and being saved from sin are as corrupt or more than the very world. 
that we claim to be separate from. And our gospel witness is gone. It's out. We're dead. Yes, the church is a place for sinful sinners and strugglers. We're not there yet. You have issues. So do I. But we live in repentance, and we call it for what it is. All at the same time, announcing the hope that we found for salvation and redemption, and the hope of eternity with Christ. And we call our struggles what they are, their sin. We're working through them, we're getting help, we're repenting. We're walking in the light, we're walking by the Spirit. Instead of just saying, ignore it, nothing to see here, move along. Here's the deal, that if the church won't police itself, Jesus will step in and do it for them. But when he steps in to do it for them, he actually removes their witness completely. He gives churches that are confused or out of balance, he gives them time like he gives the woman Jezebel. He gave her time. But if churches don't come back to Christ, no matter how successful they've been, Jesus will step in. And Jesus has been stepping into churches and shutting them down for the last 2,000 years. Thyatira does not exist any longer. I couldn't trace it down. One, one commentator said didn't last into the second century at all. The only thing left was uh, individuals that went their se separate ways. And you know what? Here's the deal. Journey Church, we do not want to be a collection of Christians that in the end get shut down. We want to be a light to the world. But we want to be internally powerful and clean and bright. Not perfect, but growing and living in repentance. But I've got good news for those of you who one day might find yourself in a faithless or unfaithful church. You want to know what it is? You can still be faithful. Individuals can never blame the church for their faithlessness. Never. You always have what you need to be faithful to Christ, even if the church falls into dysfunction and disrepair. That's how this letter ends. To the rest of you who do not practice or hold to her teachings, I lay on you no other burden. Only hold fast to what you have. To the one who remains faithful and strong in that vein, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you great reward. You're going to reign with me in the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you the morning star. You're not going to be ground to pieces when my judgment falls. Only hold fast to what you have. 1 Timothy 6, Paul is talking to an individual and he says this, and so even if a church goes into dysfunction, listen to what he says to an individual. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, all the things that we're talking about in church health, right? 
Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In Journey Church, external gospel witness and internal gospel goodness at the same time. Right? So this morning, it comes down to a collection of individuals. And the scripture, even going into communion time this morning, is the Apostle Paul saying to individuals, let a man examine himself. Do some internal inventory where you're at with with your own church health standards. Your loving evangelistic gospel outreach into the community, but also your internal purity and integrity as we go into a time of communion. Can you pray? Father, thank you for shooting straight with us. Jesus, thank you for telling the truth. Thank you for giving us the advantage of history and time and all the scriptures so that we as individuals and definitely we as a corporate body can take heed uh, to all your warnings and promises. We ask that we would be a gospel light, not just to the nations, but to the neighbors across the street. But then also that when and if they bow the knee to Christ, there would be a healthy, godly, life-giving culture of goodness whereby they can come and join us and benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.